This is part two of a three-part series on the Suez crisis. If you're interested in content and understanding better, you should probably go ahead and listen to part one. On February 5th, 2003, Colin Powell, the then Secretary of the State under the Bush administration, was giving a speech at the United Nations Security Council in New York City. The goal of the speech was to create a UN coalition to support the now-fated Iraq invasion. While holding a vial of anthrax, allegedly from Iraq, he said, quote, My colleagues, every statement that I make today is backed up by sources, solid sources. These are not assertions. What we are giving you are facts and conclusions based on solid intelligence, end quote. Powell claimed that Iraq was hiding weapons of mass destruction from inspectors and refusing to disarm and that many Iraqis had visited Osama bin Laden in Afghanistan and provided training to al-Qaeda members. Thousands of Arabs from many countries did this as well. In March 2003, the United States government announced that diplomacy has failed and that it would proceed with a coalition of the willing to rid Iraq under Saddam Hussein of weapons of mass destruction. The U.S. and U.K. insisted it possessed. What Colin Powell told the U.N. was not true. Saddam Hussein had not been in possession of WMDs and he wasn't actively supported or even connected to al-Qaeda. He actually had in fact been against radical Islam. Fifty years before, the same propaganda was being thrown at an Egyptian leader named Nasser. In the 1950s, the main issue of the day wasn't terrorism, but was communism. M16, the British Secret Service, and the CIA in Washington were reporting on Nasser and his alleged connections to communism. Nasser had been anti-communist as much as he had been anti-Western imperialism. During the Black Saturday riots, King Farouk did nothing, and on July 23, 1952, a coup d'etat was staged by the Free Officers Movement, a group of army officers led by Mohamed Naguib, the first president and prime minister of the modern-day Republic of Egypt, and Gamel Abdel Nasser. Nasser is to the Arabs what Ben-Gurion is to the Jews. He is today considered the father of Arab nationalism. He came from a lower middle class family in the Delta region, and because of his lower middle class upbringing, he developed a sympathy for the underdog and socialistic-esque ideas. He was brilliant and charismatic, handsome and loved to read. He managed to teach himself English and would often give speeches and interviews in English. Many believed he was a deep thinker. He was obsessed with politics from a young age and wanted an ideology perfect for the Arabs, not colonialism and not communism. Many believed he was the true leader of the 1952 coup, but because of his young age, he was only 34 at the time. Naguib would be the face of the revolution. In Nasser's mind, the Jews were the ultimate enemy. The Europeans with their colonialism could be shaped into building Egypt. There was none of that admiration towards the Israelis. Nasser was an anti-Semite. He once said, quote, No person, not even the simplest one, takes seriously the lie of the six million Jews that were murdered in the Holocaust. End quote. Nasser was convinced the Israelis wanted constant expansion. Nasser once said in an interview, quote, you are from Britain. Would you accept to give Manchester to some other people? And if you are American, I ask you the same way. Do you accept to give California to some other people? Or would you accept the status quo of occupying Manchester by some other people? By the Chinese, for instance? And then reach an agreement after expelling the people of Manchester from their homes, depriving them of their property, of everything? This is the question of Palestine. End quote. The biggest threat to the Free Officers Movement coup was British intervention. Naguib was dispatched to meet with the British diplomat John Hamilton. During the meeting, Hamilton assured Naguib that Britain supported the abdication of King Farouk, that the Churchill government viewed the coup as an internal Egyptian matter, and that Britain would intervene only if it felt British lives and property in Egypt were in danger. An ultimatum was offered to Naguib. 
King Farouk was to abdicate the throne and leave Egypt by 6 p.m. the following day, or the Egyptian troops gathered outside of Ras al-Tin would storm the palace and execute him. Farouk agreed to the terms of the ultimatum. Farouk was peacefully deposed. They let him keep his money and sent him out on his yacht, and they gave him a 21-gun salute as the boat left Alexandria. Naguib allowed Faud II to succeed his father as king of Egypt. It was a move meant to deny the British a pretext for invasion, and allowed the revolutionaries to maintain that they were opposed only to the corrupt regime of Farouk and not the monarchy itself. However, after consolidating their power, the Free Officers Movement quickly implemented their long-held plans for abolishing the monarchy. Ali Maher's government resigned on September 17, 1952, and Naguib was appointed Prime Minister on June 18, 1953. Almost 11 months after the revolution, Naguib stripped Faud of his title and officially declared the end of the Kingdom of Egypt and the establishment of the Republic of Egypt. The first move of the new Republic of Egypt was the withdrawal of British soldiers from their land. And in 1953, negotiations started. The ancient Churchill, who was at this time suffering from bad health, he had his first stroke in 1949, was elected to his second prime ministership in 1953, and it became clear that Britain could not maintain their colonial empire. By the early 1950s, Britain attempted to remain the third major power in the world. Britain attempted to stand up to the USA, but the Churchill administration, Churchill himself being half American, attempted to keep close ties with the USA. Britain asked in vain for the USA to support Britain's position in Egypt and the Middle East. In America, the Truman administration declined, citing any American support of the Brits in the Middle East would be seen as pro-imperialist and would support pro-Soviet regimes in the area. By early 1953, the cabinet's foreign policy's top priority was Egypt and the anti-imperialist Egyptian revolution. The Egyptians continued to harass British troops, and in March 1953, Nasser led the Egyptian delegation negotiating a British withdrawal from the Suez Canal. Churchill's foreign secretary leading the delegation on the side of the British was a man named Antony Eden. Eden was deputy to Churchill for 15 years and had been in the shadow of the larger-than-life Churchill for his entire life. Eventually, Churchill, due to health concerns, would step down, and Eden would succeed him as prime minister. Today, Antony Eden is regularly listed as the least popular British prime minister of the 20th century. He is hardly remembered by the common folk of the UK. One of Eden's main problems, as well as with many conservative politicians in the United Kingdom, is that people thought Eden lacked a sense of contact with the common man. The irony is that he was so connected to Churchill all of his life, he even married Winston Churchill's niece in 1952. Probably his inferiority complex and his desire to prove his worth as a leader would lead to his downfall. During World War I, Eden served on the Western Front. He rose through the ranks and eventually received the rank of captain. He distinguished himself during the war and eventually earned the Military Cross, one of Britain's highest medals. After World War I, Eden took an interest in politics and Oriental languages. He learned how to speak Arabic fluently, along with Persian, German, French, and of course English. He wanted to be a politician, specializing in foreign affairs, although said he had no interest in a governing job. Eden was a great orator and diplomat. He gave his maiden speech the 19th of February, 1924. It was an attack on the Labour Party. He was heckled. And after that, he was careful to give a speech and only would do after deep preparation. In 1933, Chamberlain commented, quote, That young man is coming along rapidly. Not only can he make a good speech, but he also has a good head, and what advice he gives is listened to by the cabinet. End quote. Eden famously resigned along with Churchill over Chamberlain's appeasement of Hitler. He believed that you must stand up to dictators. Eden was considered a leader of fashion in the early 1930s. The Homburg hat in England was known as an Antony Eden. Mussolini even called him the best-dressed fool in Europe, after Eden tried to convince him not to invade Ethiopia. 
After the 1940s, Churchill and Eden became allies, due to their staunch disapproval of the Axis powers. In 1945, many thought Eden should be the opposition leader. He asked Churchill to retire, and Churchill refused. Churchill at this time was regularly traveling and writing, leaving much of his work for Eden. Eden was anti-European Union and the European community, and he was often critical of Churchill's approval for the special relationship with America, and was disappointed by the American treatment of their British allies. Eden didn't like the Americans as much as Churchill. Eden once said about his successor, Harold Macmillan's government policies, quote, it has had the effect of making us the 49th U.S. state, end quote. Eden believed in empire, but he didn't realize the world was changing. Eden, along with most moderate Tories, believed that the canal was too expensive. It was, after all, the largest military base in the world at this time, stationing 80,000 British troops. The Egyptians wanted them out, and the only other option was a military invasion of Egypt. Eden decided to turn his attention to the other Arab nations in an attempt to contain communism. Eden would go on to form the Baghdad Pact with Iraq, Turkey, Iran, Pakistan, and the United Kingdom. By the 19th of October, 1954, an agreement was reached between Eden and Nasser. It was decided that all British troops would leave within 20 months and would only return if Egypt or Turkey was attacked. Nasser was a hero for getting the British to withdraw, and on October 26, 1954, he gave a speech in Alexandria to celebrate the withdrawal. An assassin working for the Muslim Brotherhood was waiting in the crowd and shot at Nasser eight times. All the shots missed. Panic broke out in the mass audience. But Nasser maintained his posture and raised his voice to appeal for calm. With great emotion, he exclaimed the following, quote, My countrymen, my blood spills for you and for Egypt. I will live for your sake and die for the sake of your freedom and honor. Let them kill me. It does not concern me as long as I have instilled pride, honor, and freedom in you all. If Gamal Abdel Nasser should die, each one of you shall be Gamal Abdel Nasser. Gamal Abdel Nasser is of you and from you, and he is willing to sacrifice his life for the nation. End quote. The crowd roared in approval. The Arab audiences were electrified. The assassination attempt backfired, quickly playing into Nasser's hands. He ordered one of the largest political crackdowns in the modern history of Egypt, with the arrest of thousands of dissenters, mostly members of the Brotherhood, but also communists and the dismissal of 140 officers loyal to Naguib. Eight Muslim brothers were sentenced to death. Although the sentence of its chief dialogue, Naguib, was removed from the presidency and put under house arrest, but was never tried and sentenced, and no one in the army rose to defend him. With his rivals neutralized, Nasser became the undisputed leader of Egypt. Nasser's first objective was to build the Aswan Dam. The dam would allow the Egyptians to control the waters of the Nile, which for millennium was the lifeblood of Egypt, with its ability to better control flooding, provide increased water storage for irrigation, and generate hydroelectricity, the dam was seen as pivotal to Egypt's planned industrialization. In order to do this, Nasser needed money, which wasn't a problem as both the Americans and the Soviets were in the deep stages of the Cold War and were looking for friends. Egypt being the most powerful Arab nation and potentially the leader of the Arab world seemed like a great friend for both of the powers. The USA and Britain offered to help build the dam with a loan of $270 million in return for Nasser's help ending the Arab-Israeli conflict. Nasser was vehemently anti-Israeli. In his idea, the Israelis were an expansionist state who viewed the Arabs with disdain. They needed to be stopped. The Israeli government knew this, and in response to the British withdrawal from the Suez, they implemented Operation Susanna. Operation Susanna was an Israeli terrorist operation staged in the summer of 1954. After the British agreed to withdraw their soldiers from the Suez, and the talks about the forming of the Baghdad Pact with the other Middle Eastern nations, the Israelis feared an outright invasion from the Egyptians. 
it became apparent that the British and the Americans were getting closer to the Egyptians and the other Arab states. The Israelis set up a series of terrorist attacks on British and American targets disguised as Muslim extremists. They hired Egyptian Jews, one of which was caught when his bomb was a dud, and after the interrogation, he confessed. The goal of Operation Susanna was to undermine Western confidence in the existing Egyptian regime by generating public insecurity and actions to bring about arrests, demonstrations, and acts of revenge while totally concealing the Israeli factor. Operation Susanna was a failure. Israel lost significant standing and credibility in its relations with the United Kingdom and the United States. It took years to repair that. The aftermath saw considerable political turmoil in Israel, which affected the influence of its government. Churchill finally stepped down due to his failing health, and Eden assumed the prime ministership. Nasser soon met with Eden personally in Cairo. Eden felt that Egypt was still a part of the British sphere of influence, and he wanted to reinforce this idea to Nasser. In the meeting, Eden attempted to have Nasser stop spewing anti-British rhetoric. There was an anti-colonial radio station called Voice of the Arabs, or Sat al-Arab, that was very popular over the Arabic world at this time. Eden wanted it stopped, and he wanted Egypt to join the Baghdad Pact. Nasser replied, quote, The Soviets are thousands of miles away. The real enemy to Egypt is Israel. End quote. Eden promised not to add more Arab states to the Baghdad Pact. He lied about this, and later attempted to have Jordan join. Nasser didn't draw back anti-British sentiment. Eden went to the meeting dressed rather formally, and spoke to Nasser in Arabic. Nasser felt inferior in every way and was gravely insulted. The meeting was a failure, and added personal resentment between the two men. Ben-Gurion had taken a two-year break from government. After Operation Susanna, he returned in 1955. He took an aggressive stance against the Palestinian Fedayeen. The Fedayeen are a Palestinian organization that if you were an Israeli, you would consider terrorists, and if you were an Arab, freedom fighters. They are an organization of left-wing nationalists who come from families of refugees of the 1948 war with the goal of creating a secular, unified, non-sectarian Palestine. They had regularly attacked Israeli military targets and even occasionally civilians. Egypt at this time was in control of the Gaza Strip, and Nasser capitalized on the Palestinians' discontent. He started supporting the Fedayeen by providing them with military assistance on their raids. After an attack by the Fedayeen murdered an Israeli citizen in the town of Revolt, Ben-Gurion demanded a harsh response to the attack and Nasser ignored him. The Israelis sent a raid into Gaza, named Operation Black Arrow, where 38 Egyptians were killed. Egypt was again humiliated. Nasser felt the Egyptian army was not ready for a confrontation and couldn't respond to the Israelis. The ineffectiveness of his army was a great blow to his growing popularity. Nasser subsequently ordered the tightening of the blockade through the Straits of Tehran and restricted the use of airspace over the Gulf of Aqaba by Israeli aircraft in early September. Nasser realized if he was going to maintain Egypt's regional leadership position, he needed to acquire modern weaponry to arm his military. First, Nasser turned to Britain and the USA, who rejected his request. He couldn't rely on Western countries, so he turned to the Eastern Bloc and signed an armaments agreement with Czechoslovakia for 320 million US dollars. By the spring of 1956, Egypt was free of British troops. The USA was furious with Nasser, negotiating with the communist states. The final nail in the coffin was in May 1956, Nasser recognized China. The British and the Americans pulled away their offer to fund the Aswan Dam. This bankrupted Egypt, and a week later, on the 26th of July 1956, Nasser nationalized the Suez in response. Under the codename Operation Dignity and Glory, the Egyptians seized the Suez Canal. Nasser gave a long three-hour speech in Alexandria. 
While he was speaking, a group of 30 soldiers waited outside the headquarters of the Suez Canal Company. <laughs> Waiting for the trigger word, which was de lesseps. Nasser gave a great speech about the mistreatment of Egypt from the Europeans and the Americans. How he attempted to modernize Egypt because of the growing population. How he attempted to get a loan for the dam so that they could only provide Egypt with energy and water. And how both the Europeans and the Americans rejected him. That nationalizing the Suez was the only option to lift Egypt out of poverty. At the end of the speech, Nasser announced the taking of the dam. The crowd cheered greatly. Eden was furious, and he compared Nasser to Hitler, saying, quote, We all know this is how fascist governments behave. We all remember too well what the caste can be when giving in to fascism. End quote. The Americans were less angry. Eisenhower sent a letter to Eden saying, quote, Under no circumstances would the U.S. support use of force. End quote. Nasser agreed to pay fair market shares for the investors of the Suez to buy them outright. His plan was to use the money from the Suez Canal to build the Aswan Dam and use that money to modernize Egypt. A review about the nationalization came out and said that as long as Egypt pays shares and allows all ships to pass through, the move was not illegal. Eden looked at the review quickly and said, This is no fucking good, and threw it across the table. Ben-Gurion was becoming worried over the Egyptian Czech arms deal and realized an invasion from Egypt was on the horizon. He turned to France for arms. The French premier, Guy Mollet, was angry over the nationalization of the canal, but the real problem was the FLN in Algeria. During this time, the Algerian war was increasing rapidly and the FLN was being supplied by Nasser. Voice of the Arabs was also spewing anti-colonial rhetoric, insisting the Algerians to rebel. Nasser believed it was his responsibility to help his Arab brothers everywhere. The French foreign minister was a man named Christian Pinot. He was very sympathetic towards the Jews. Having been arrested during World War II as a French resistance fighter and then sent to Buchenwald concentration camp, he saw the mass corpses of Jews during the Holocaust and it left a mark on his psyche. What happened next was a secret meeting that only emerged 40 years later the Sevres Protocol. France, Israel, and the UK all sent representatives to meet in a secret villa in a suburb of Paris, located in Sevres. Ben-Gurion leading the Israeli group, with Christian Pinot representing the French. The British, being much more skeptical of the agreement, changed leaders halfway through the negotiations, from Selwyn Lloyd to his assistant Patrick Dean. They and their aides secretly planned an invasion of Egypt, including a cover story. First, Israel would attack Egypt in the Sinai Desert, and then Britain and France would invade under the pretext separating the combatants and protecting the canal. This would be legitimate as the 1954 Anglo-Egyptian Treaty stated that the British could return if Egypt was invaded. The most difficult part of the negotiations was the British. The British had a number of Arab countries that they didn't want to damage their relationships with, and the French refused to join without British cooperation. Ben-Gurion insisted on it being called the English Plan. He was very wary of the notion of Israel being labeled as the aggressor, and France and England being seen as the peacekeepers. Ben-Gurion was greatly excited by the prospect of a military partnership with the great powers against Egypt, but extremely suspicious of the British in general, 
and of Sir Antony Eden in particular. Ben-Gurion personally respected Churchill, but he didn't have the same notion with Eden. Ben-Gurion had much more solidarity with the French. They discussed for 48 hours between the days of 22nd, 23rd, and 24th of October. A plan was hatched to topple the government of Nasser. The plan was for the Israelis to launch an invasion of Egypt. Once the British and the French realized the Suez was in danger, they would send an ultimatum to the Israelis and the Egyptians. The French, the British, and the Israelis knew the Egyptians had to decline, as this was Egyptian land, and the Israelis would occupy the Sinai Peninsula. The British and the French would thus invade Egypt under the pretext of the defense of the Suez. The ultimatum was as follows. To the Egyptian government, halt all acts of war, withdraw all its troops 10 miles from the canal, accept temporary occupation of key positions on the canal by the Anglo-French forces to guarantee freedom of passage through the canal by vessels of all nations until a final settlement, to the Israeli government, halt all acts of war, withdraw all troops to 10 miles east of the canal. The French and the Israelis knew that they needed the British if this plan was to exceed, so they had the plan typed into three separate copies in French. The following is what was stated. The representatives of the three governments agree that the Israeli government will not be required to meet the conditions in the appeal addressed to it. In the event that the Egyptian government should fail to agree within the stipulated time to the conditions of the appeal addressed to it, the Anglo-French forces will launch military operations against the Egyptian forces in the early hours of the morning of the 31st of October. The Israeli government will send forces to occupy the western shore of the Gulf of Aqaba, Tehran and Sanafir, to ensure freedom of navigation in the Gulf of Aqaba. Israel undertakes not to attack Jordan during the period of operation against Egypt, but in the event that, during the same period, Jordan should attack Israel, the British government undertakes not to come to the aid of Jordan. The arrangements of this present protocol must remain strictly secret. They will enter into force after the agreement of the three governments. Signed, David Ben-Gurion, Patrick Dean, Christian Pinot. Ben-Gurion himself conceived the plan to reorganize the Middle East. He called it fantastic. The plan was Jordan would be divided between Iraq and Israel. The East Bank of Jordan would be settled by the Palestinian refugees, while the West Bank would be attached to Israel as a semi-autonomous region. Lebanon, which had a minority population of Christians and a large population of Muslims, located in the south, would be turned into a compact Christian state with Israeli expansion up the Litani River. The Straits of Tehran in the Gulf of Aqaba would come under the control of the Israelis to ensure the freedom of navigation. Nasser would be eliminated and a pro-Western government would be installed. The French would consolidate their power and influence in the Middle East through Lebanon and the Algerian war would come to an end with the fall of Nasser. The British would restore their strength over the Arab countries and with it would be given access to the oil of the Middle East. Israel would no longer have to deal with Arab nationalism and the threat of a genocide, and the Suez would be reverted back to an international waterway. When Eden realized that there was proof of the secret meeting, he said, quote, Oh my God, I never thought it would be written down, end quote. Hey there, sorry for interrupting. If you like the show, please subscribe to me on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or whatever you use. Because my show is really new, basically Pandora is the only way I'm getting listens. Pandora and YouTube. So I really appreciate that. Thanks a lot. And please tell your friends about the show. The more people that subscribe, the more people that'll see my show and I can make more content. This was part two of a three-part series on the Suez Crisis. You can find the third and final part on Apple Podcasts, uh, Google Podcasts, Spotify. Thank you for your time. I hope you enjoyed.